You're listening to Muted History, the podcast where we discuss historical and sometimes current true crime incidents across the world and the impact those events have had on our communities. On this show, we inform, educate, and entertain. In this week's episode, we will deep dive into the tragic events of the Wilmington Massacre of 1898. This violent uprising in North Carolina was fueled by economic disparity and disenfranchisement of Black Americans in the area. During the riots, many African Americans were lynched, and the impact of the massacre is still felt today in terms of its effect on Black political power in North Carolina and beyond. We will explore the historical context leading up to the massacre, examining the roles of the prominent figures involved and how race played a role in the events. Additionally, we will examine how the government officials of the time handled the situation and how justice was served after the events of November the 10th, 1898. Through interviews with historians, victims' families, and local activists, we'll gain insight into what's been done to honor those affected by the massacre and acknowledge its significance in American history. Finally, we'll explore how this event is still relevant today with regards to racial inequity, discrimination, civil rights, and social justice movements across America. So let's jump right in. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 did not happen in isolation, but was fueled by political tensions and economic disparities that had been brewing for a long time. The coastal city of Wilmington was one of the largest in the state of North Carolina in the 1890s, and its population was made up of a significant number of African Americans. Many of these individuals were working class and shared similar economic struggles with poor white laborers. At the time, North Carolina was known for policies that were hostile towards its African-American population, including Jim Crow laws and an electoral process that disenfranchised many minority voters. The president elected at that time was William McKinley. He was the 25th president of the United States, serving from March the 4th, 1897 until September the 14th, 1901. In September of 1901, uh, for those that may recall, Uh, McKinley was actually um, assassinated. He was shot twice and he died eight days later from his wounds. I want to paint a picture of what it was like in the United States in 1896 to some degree. So the United States was undergoing rapid industrialization, transitioning from an agrarian to an industrial society. Industries like steel, Railroads and textiles were expanding, leading to urbanization and the growth of cities. The economy experienced fluctuations, including a depression in the early 1890s, but was recovering by 1896. Immigration from Europe was significant, contributing to the country's cultural and economic landscapes. Despite industrialization, a significant portion of the population still lived in rural areas and relied on agriculture. Farming and agriculture, particularly crops like corn, wheat, and cotton, play a crucial role in the economy. Transportation infrastructure was expanding, with railroads connecting different parts of the country, and horse-drawn carriages still prevalent, prevalent in cities. 
Electricity, telegraph, and telephone were advancing means of communication, while indoor plumbing and utilities were becoming more common in urban areas. Public education was gaining importance, although access varied across the region. Gender roles were largely traditional, with men working outside the home and women focusing on domestic tasks. The women's suffrage movement was uh, growing, advocating for women's right to vote. I'm sure the women's suffrage movement will be a topic that is discussed on this show one day for muted history. Also during this time frame, it's important to note that the United States also faced issues of racial segregation. The treatment of Native Americans and limited rights of minority groups was significantly impacted marginalized communities during this period. In Wilmington specifically, the city had a Republicanly leaning newspaper called the Daily Record, which is owned and operated by African-Americans. The paper's editor, Alex Manley, published an editorial in August of 1898 that was in response to a speech by a prominent prominent Wilmington politician, Alfred Waddell. For the record, Waddell was a piece of work. He was an American politician and a known white supremacist. He was also a member of the Democratic Party. Uh, He served as a U.S. representative of North Carolina until 1879 and was the mayor of Wilmington, North Carolina, after this massacre. Angered that a Republican had taken the United States presidential office, Waddell reportedly threatened to lead a group of white men into a military engagement against the city's black population if they did not stop exercising their right to vote. Manley's editorial, while not directly addressing Waddell, was viewed as highly inflammatory by white supremacists. What had happened was, essentially, um, there were folks going around giving speeches and saying how black men were uh, taking advantage of white women, that it was just a fear tactic that um, these Democrats used so that they could stop Uh, the solidarity that the poor were having together, that the poor Republicans, black and white alike, were having together so that there could be, uh, honestly, white people in political spaces and not black. That's just simply what it was. And so in Manley's editorial, and let me tell you a little bit about Manley. So Manley was a newspaper owner. Um, He lived in Wilmington, North Carolina, he published a daily record and it was the, the state's only African-American newspaper and possibly the nation's only black owned daily, daily newspaper at that time. Manley published a controversial editorial objecting to stereotypes of black men as rapists of white women. In the editorial, it accused white men of having consensual sexual relationships with black women, which fed into their fear of racial impurity. Uh, It has to be noted that interracial relationships were illegal at this time. And the suggestion that white men would engage uh, with black women was deemed as unspeakable to many white people. And can you imagine that there are politicians going across this particular area talking about how black men are raping, raping white women in droves, although that was false and not true and really just used to create bigotry uh, amongst the poor uh, 
Republicans so that these Democrats could have office. So it's kind of the opposite of what we see today. I found a study that said that 71% of African-American voters voted for a Democratic president in 2016, although only 44% consider themselves a member of the Democratic Party. So almost 50% of African-Americans today, based on that study, are um, have, have voted for a Democratic president. Well, but during this time frame, it was the Democrats that were seeking to have African-Americans removed from the political process. All right, so I'm going to try to explain this. So we think about the Republicans and the Democrats. Don't think of them as we see them today. So the Republicans joined with the populists and when they were joined together, the Democrats who were primarily white supremacists uh, called this group the fusion. And so essentially the fusion was made up of blacks and whites and, and, and they end up winning elections in both 1994 and 1996 for their political uh, goals because the political intentions were more like it was a truth accepted by all and North Carolina even sent some black Republicans between 1875 and 1899. Now, controversial as it may seem, most African-Americans voted for the Republican Party, a party that today is considered conservative and not very liberal uh, on the most sensitive social and economic issues. The main focus of the Democratic Party was white supremacy. And the focus of white supremacy went well with another party called the Populist Party, which was basically made up of whites who worked in the primary sector and were fed up with a lack of money because African-Americans were becoming successful and were fully involved in society as they went to college, owned property, and were well-educated. So before the populists joined with the Democrats, the populists were actually uh, linked with the Republicans um, so the Republicans joined with the populists first and they this this grouping together with the populists and the Republicans was called the fusion. Uh, so in the elections of 1894 and 1896, they were met, they were able to defeat Democrats. Now, this fusion was made up of blacks and whites. Thus, they were able to win. Now, as controversial as it is is their political intentions were more like that of the Democrats for today. They're, uh, so th that may be confusing. So the intentions of the Republicans and the, the populists, this fusion group, was uh, free education and debt relief, which is absolutely an insult to the Democrats at that time. Hope that makes sense. So you got the populists, the Democrats, and the Republicans. The Democrats' main priority was white supremacy. The populists shared the white supremacy ideas, but they had partnered with the Republicans in order to get some of their agenda moved forward. And some of that agenda would be equity between blacks and whites, that's on the Republican side, and free education and debt relief. Again, all of this, not something that the Democrats wanted. So in an attempt to regain control of the state, 
Again, in order to regain control of the state, Democrats ran a campaign that attracted white populists who belonged to the fusion party. The Democrats campaign was focused on the media in the mode of racist cartoons in which the meaning of these cartoons was to show that there was domination by blacks and that women would be threats if blacks remained in power. The Democratic handbook was very explicit and the message was one. This is a white man's country, so white men should control and rule. Their whole campaign was well done because they touched on sensitive issues that everyone could understand through these cartoons since a certain part of the population was illiterate. And it was just before elections. The the Democrats got what they were looking for. Now the white voters are afraid and angry and do not want the domination of blacks. Their mission was concrete. They wanted racial segregation, segregation that they have been demanding for a long time and that they will never accept the changes that aimed at racial equality and sought stronger rights for individual states. The Jim Crow laws that reigned at the time legalized racial segregation among the population. That is not all citizens had the same rights, which in this case was between black Americans, African Americans who saw their rights being deprived and whites. Uh, guided by white supremacy who accepted the segregation. African-Americans were denied several privileges that whites had, such as the simple right to vote and education, and their offer in terms of life and job opportunities were limited. Although today such a situation is unthinkable in the eyes of the world, African-Americans who tried to challenge these laws were punished with gratuitous violence, fines, jail time, and ultimately could be killed. Now, when we evaluate today the situation of where they could live, we know that African-Americans had a very difficult time getting mortgage loans for houses in certain neighborhoods because different zones of the cities were divided upon racial issues. That is, if many African-American families living in a certain neighborhood, it could compromise the whole neighborhood and access to get mortgages was more difficult for the inhabitants of that zone. So blacks suffered from racism and were seen as a contagion that they were not allowed to have housing opportunities in certain places. Many places were filled with signs that said whites only. But the worst was yet to come in Wilmington. On election day, the Democratic Party had a scam up their sleeves, which was called Red Shirts which was a paramilitary group that wore red shirts as their uniform and acted for the Democrats. And their job was was one thing, to make sure that blacks couldn't get out of their homes to go vote. Of course, the obvious happened. The Democrats won the election, hands down. But white white supremacy takes no days off. The next day, a meeting was held for the men of Wilmington, white men only, Uh, And they presented a document called the White Declaration of Independence, a declaration that prevented African-Americans from voting, uh, expressly stated that it would never be possible to be governed by African-American men again. And on November the 10th, 1998, the scenario was uh, the worst. Hundreds of houses where African-Americans lived were set on fire. Uh, Alexander Lightfoot, the owner of the Daily Paper, Um, was ordered to leave town within 24 hours so that 
his life would not be put at risk. And as for his paper, the daily record was burnt down by white supremacists. Uh, these days, the space once occupied by the newspaper is now an empty space that uh, history has planted. 2,000 white men poured into the city to spread chaos. Um, there was systematic violence against African-Americans. It was one of those days that Wilmington tried to erase from history because more than 60 African-Americans were killed. But the figure is believed to easily be 300 deaths. The sites were marked with crosses, which indicated the houses or places where blacks were had already been slaughtered or driven, driven out. Although the story is misrepresented, it is believed that the bodies were thrown into the river and those who managed to escape sought refuge in the forest on the outskirts of the city and others even managed to flee to nearby towns. The next day, billboards flooded the city with a message celebrating the democratic victory accompanied by illustrations showing scenarios in which African-Americans appeared with guns in hand, a way to mitigate the problem and cover up the real problem. African-Americans were seen as the cause to the whole riot, but everyone knew that this was a lie because African-Americans tried to buy guns in order to defend their families and their property, but shopkeepers refused to sell any guns and still kept a list of blacks who were looking to buy a gun. In addition to the killings at City Hall, both the mayor and board of aldermen were forced out of their existing political offices to make way for Democrats. Black representation was extinguished in all political areas, and it wasn't until 90 years later in 1992 that Wilmington even elected another black member to Congress, Eva Clayton. Even today, certain events that are documented and buried by the U.S. government, which continues to see this act as a turning point in history and continues to congratulate those involved in the story as heroes, despite the fact that the economic and social impact perpetrated against African-Americans remains immeasurable to some extent today. Now, despite the efforts made by various investigations aimed at seeking and, and explaining the 1889 riot and also the impact it had, historians, on the other, stand, other hand, do not speak of a riot, but a coup d'etat, the only one that the U.S. has ever experienced. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 remains one of the most significant incidents of racial violence in U.S. history. It is a chilling reminder of the devastating consequences of institutionalized racism, economic disparities, and political tensions. One of the most notable impacts of the Wilmington Massacre was the destruction of the black political power in North Carolina. Before the massacre, Wilmington was known for its progressive African-American community who held an amount of political power in the city. Black residents held important position in the government and they even owned their own newspaper. However, after the massacre, all white supremacist Democrats took over the city and expelled African-American leaders from the office. The result was the state government that was entirely dominated by white politicians and the African-American community in Wilmington was disenfranchised for decades to come. The impact of the Wilmington massacre went beyond North Carolina as well. The massacre was an example of how institutionalized racism, economic disparities, and political tensions can come together to create devastating consequences for minority groups. For African-Americans living in the South, the Wilmington massacre was an omen of what was to come in the what was co to come in the coming decades.
The massacre also had a profound impact on the civil rights movement, which emerged several decades later. The violence and terror experienced by African-Americans and Wilmington inspired many activists to join the struggle for equal rights. And it served as a stark reminder of the cruelty of racism and the need for social and political change. In recent years, there's been a growing recognition of the Wilmington massacre among historians and the general public. Efforts are underway to memorialize the victims of the massacre and to tell their stories more widely. Additionally, black political power has been gradually increasing in North Carolina and across the country, thanks to the hard work of activists and advocates. Despite this progress, the legacy of the Wilmington Massacre remains a troubling reminder of how far we still have to go to achieve racial equality in America. The massacre was a clear example of the forces of racism and white supremacy that continue to threaten the lives and the livelihoods of black people in the United States. As we move forward, it is essential to remember the lessons of the Wilmington Massacre and to work towards a more just and equitable society. Efforts to seek justice for the victims of the Wilmington Massacre have been ongoing for years. In recent times, there's been an ongoing recognition that the event was not simply a matter of mob violence, but rather a coordinated effort to suppress and disenfranchise the community. Historians and activists have been working to document the experiences of the victims and their descendants, hoping to shed light on the atrocities committed and the long-standing impact of the tragedy. In 2000, the North Carolina State Senate passed a resolution apologizing for the events of the 1898 massacre and recognizing the ongoing harm caused to the black community. Additionally, there have been efforts to memorialize the victims of the massacre. In 2006, the city of Wilmington installed a historical marker commemorating the event and acknowledging the role that white supremacy played in it. In 2021, the North Carolina State Historical Commission approved plans for a memorial to be built in Wilmington's historical downtown to honor the victims of the massacre. Those who have worked to seek justice for the victims of the Wilmington Massacre have also highlighted the need for reparations. The destruction of Black-owned businesses and the expulsion of Black leaders from the office had a severe economic impact on Wilmington's Black community, one that, it felt for, that was felt for generations. Advocates for reparations argue that the government and the private businesses that benefited from the massacre should be held accountable for the harm done to the Black community. While efforts to seek justice for the victims of the Wilmington Massacre have been significant, there's still a long way to go. The legacy of the events continue to impact Wilmington's Black community and serves as a stark reminder of the ongoing struggle for racial justice in America. Now, as we continue to grapple with painful history of racial violence and oppression, it's essential to support those who are working to, under, to uncover the truth, seek justice, and promote healing. Ultimately, the legacy of the Wilmington Massacre is a call to action. We must work together to address the ongoing struggles of racial justice and equity in America and to create a more just and equitable, equitable society for all. Only then can we truly honor the victims of this tragedy and ensure that their legacy is one of progress and not just pain.
that does it for this week's episode of Muted History. Um, I hope to catch you next time. Hey, this is a free podcast. And one of the easiest and simplest ways for you to support us is by rating and reviewing the show. So do it now before you forget. If there's a true crime incident you want us to cover, or if you have a question, message us at contact at mutedhistory.com. That's contact at M-U-T-E-D-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y.com. Tell your people about the podcast. Your recommendation helps our show grow. Louise Gama wrote, In us, even color is a defect, an unforgivable birth defect, the stigma of a crime. But our critics forget that our color is the origin of the wealth of thousands of thieves who insult us, that this conventional color of slavery, so similar to that of the earth, shelters under its dark surface volcanoes where burns the sacred fire of freedom. Louise Gama